All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, like Emily was saying earlier, uh, welcome if it's your first Sunday. Glad you guys are with us. Um, thanks, band, for that as well. Um, well, hey, I just want to say thanks to, uh, just before we get into Genesis here for uh, a couple of minutes, um, thanks for, uh, if you guys weren't here last week, um, I, right before first service, I started to get a migraine, which I get semi-frequently, not as much anymore, but um, ever so often, and I got through first service but couldn't preach second service. If you weren't here for that, that's kind of what happened, and so Spence, I feel like I was tagging in a pro wrestler or something, <laughs> kind of like, tag, you're in, I'm done, sleeper hold, I'm just out, but... Um, and I uh, did really well, uh, so I heard on no prep for, uh, for uh, did really great. So uh, thanks to Spence, but also just thanks to all of you for understanding that and praying for me, and I got a lot of notes um, post-service last week, so thanks for just your thoughts and concern um, uh, as well, and I'm great this morning so far, so if you could just uh, pray that I'd, I'd get through today. Sometimes I kind of cluster together and I get a few, uh, several over a month's period before they kind of dissipate for a while, so hopefully that won't happen again today, but doing, uh, doing great so far, so praise God for that. Um, we're going to dive right in today to uh, Genesis 3, as, uh, as Peter just really summarized well a few minutes ago, uh, what we're going to look at today. We're in the latter part of chapter 3, kind of a part 2 to last week, if, um, if you were here for that. And uh, in fact, it could have been like a five-week mini-series, lots to say. We're going to cram part two together into one sermon here today, and we'll um, break for Easter next week, and then uh, dive into chapter four the following following week. So a really quick summary, though, on where we were last week. Uh, We we called this one of the most important chapters of the Bible. So if you're new to the Bible, this is understand chapter three uh, and understand what happened on the cross, who Jesus was, the gospel accounts. Those two things together, I mean, if you're going to understand anything about the Bible, it's those two segments, because this is the problem. And not just the literary problem as you read a book and say, okay, this is what the book's saying, but it's our story as well. And so because we're human beings uh, born, uh, eventually, of of Eve, Uh, all of us have the same origin. And so what we're reading here today is all of our stories as well, and I'll come back to the importance of that here in, in a little bit. But to understand the problem is to effectively and rightly understand the solution. You can't separate those things. I, I mentioned last week, it's like, you know, to separate them would be like uh, looking at someone drowning and saying, here's a sandwich. You know, we'd never do that, right? Because to understand the problem has a certain solution to it. It's, it's a life preserver. And so we don't, we don't separate those. It, it's, it's the same with the biblical storyline. To understand the problem of Genesis 3 is to understand truly and properly and rightly what happens on the cross and what Jesus' mission really was. And so it's one of the most important places to go and to Remind ourselves of, it's a sobering chapter, but also a ton of grace. We, we started to see that last week, we'll see that more here, how immediate God is with his patience and his kindness and his grace for us. So chapter three, chapter three depicts what we call the fall, uh, or when humanity's representative heads were, were tempted into rebellion against God by the devil, who takes the form of a snake or a serpent in uh, chapter three, but who was originally one of God's archangels, one of his highest angel types, who himself rebels against God in jealousy of his, his power. So specifically, the temptation looked like this. This is really important to understand that it wasn't just a grabbing for a certain random kind of fruit that God kind of, uh, again, just randomly assigned some kind of meaning to, but it was a named tree. Uh, so specifically, the temptation of Satan looked uh, like this. I'll come back to the tree here, but Satan basically was saying to Eve, God seems a little unreasonable here, doesn't he? It's just fruit. 
after all. You won't actually die, like he said, if you eat it. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil, which is a good thing, right? I mean, to know the difference between good and evil, which is in the name of the, the fruit of the tree and the tree itself, it's a good thing, right? You'll be wise. You'll become like him. This, these are the lies and the half-truths kind of blended together, twisting what God was saying to make him seem, seem unreasonable and to make what, what resides in a human being uh, more, more good or more beautiful or more godlike or more sufficient for people. So the lie was you, you don't really need God. I mean, he's, he exists. It wasn't an atheistic kind of temptation. He exists, but just keep him on the shelf over here. What you really need is the wisdom, the image, uh, the, the goodness, the inherent worth within yourself, and to really grab for that fruit and sink your teeth into that. And so Eve was enticed by this, and she ate, and she gave some to Adam, who was right there uh, passively uh, receiving this lie as well. And, um, and she and, and he, they both sinned originally, because original sin, they originally sinned by reaching for that type of fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of morality, you could say. And so we talked about then how that sin not only corrupts the heart subjectively and leads to things like adultery and murder and selfishness and envy, things we might more readily label as sin, but that it itself, reaching for that type of tree, is sin. In other words, reaching for goodness apart from God is also sin. This is one of those kind of uh, offensive, unique things to Christianity, but these offensive trip-you-up-in-your-goodness type teachings, but really set the stage for the rest of the storyline. And that sin is not just evil, it's a particular type of evil that reaches for goodness that's not God. And so, so because there, there is no goodness apart from him. So reaching for good things to say, God, you're good, but there's also good over here, and I'm going to reach for this, or reach, be- better yet, uh, to really describe what's going on here, reaching for the goodness inside here that's separate from him is actually the other end of the spectrum, but it's also sin. Which is why Jesus doesn't call us just to goodness, he calls us to himself. That's why the remedy then is belief. The remedy is Jesus saying, I am the way. Come back to a place of seeing me as the truth. Me as the life. Me as the all-sufficient grace in your life. Rather than saying, here's ten ways to have your best life now. Here's ten ways to pray better. Here's ten ways to fast this week. Here's ten ways to avoid sexual sin. And then there there are aspects to what Jesus is doing in his teaching that, that raise, I mean, goodness is still goodness. Evil is still evil, of course. It's not, this is not amorality or immorality. It's just saying that reaching for goodness apart from God is really where all hell broke loose. Interestingly enough, the devil's not saying go out and murder somebody. He's saying reach for wisdom, which is just as bad. It doesn't sound that bad, but it's just as bad. Reach for wisdom. You are good in and of yourselves. God's unreasonable. Become like him. Become a good person. That's really where all hell broke loose. And that leads to things that we might more quickly label evil, and and rightly so. There's the this is the headwaters, though, that, that leads out, that streams out into things like uh, selfishness and hate and, and adultery and murder and, um, and other things like, like that. So that idea, like I said, helps set the stage for the Bible, uh, this great contrast between law and grace uh, that helps uh, tell the storyline. Works don't save us, faith does. Law can't reconcile us with God. Only Jesus can. When we choose our own way, things go to hell. But when we submit to God and his offer of grace in his son, we are saved and so forth. We could go on and on about that. And we ended last week looking at at whispers of grace that God extends Adam and Eve immediately. 
even on the heels of this cosmic high treason that they're committing against him, he immediately extends grace in different ways. We'll look at that. But then today, he's going to pronounce judgment on all the, as, he, as is right for him to do. He's perfectly just. He's good. It's right for him to call sin, sin, and pronounce judgment upon all the parties involved. Uh, first with the devil and then Adam and Eve. But first with the devil, who you'll notice here, we'll, we'll read this in a second, the devil's not allowed to speak. Uh, God had a conversation with Adam uh, and, and Eve right before this, and they are allowed to speak, but the devil is, uh, has his mouth shut uh, before God. In fact, I want you to note that uh, posture. Maybe you already saw this last week if you were here, but note God's posture uh, throughout this whole ordeal. He's very calm. He's collected. He's in control. He's grieved, but c- clearly sovereign. Almost as if he had a plan for all this to happen all along. He's aware. He's not surprised. And, and the devil is not on the same level as God. You don't have this instant clash between God and the devil. Let's fight this out. Let's kind of arm wrestle here. There's a question of who's going to win. It's not the case. You, you see God with this posture of, I am greater than the devil. You shall not speak. I'm going to pronounce judgment on you for this. And then the story, uh, the story goes on. So, so what he intends, the devil intends for evil, and I'm, I'm quoting Genesis 50, 20. We'll be in Genesis 50 like in December. So we'll come back to this. But um, what the devil intends for evil, God intends for good. That's what you're seeing play out right here. This, this weaves itself all throughout the book and all throughout the Bible. What the devil and what we intend for evil, God intends that evil for a greater good. So he's the essence of good. He's not, and, and evil's not thwarting his plans. You you could write that into the subtext of what's happening here. All this evil that's intended, God is remaining calm and saying, I'm aware, I knew it was going to happen. My plan of of, of redeeming the world from this preceded all of this. We've already seen that in this series, how Christ and the cross and the empty tomb are already on God's mind pre-sin, pre-fall. God's completely sovereign. That's actually really an encouraging note for us, for all of us who are sinners, and we all are, uh, and all of us who are grieved by a broken earth and a broken world, uh, the type of posture God has here. So, so have that in mind. I'm not going to say much more about that specifically today, but just have that in mind uh, as we read. All right, so Genesis 3, 14 to 24. Open your Bibles to page 3. If you want Pew Bibles, page 3, or your, your own Bibles, your devices, or follow on screen. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpents, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife 
garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east end of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away or every way to guard the way to the tree of life. All right, I want to start today by um, looking at what God says to Adam and Eve first. I'll come back to what he says to the devil, to the serpent here uh, in a few minutes. And really, as we look at Adam and Eve, we can break down what God does for and says to Adam and Eve into two sections, really simple sections, judgment and grace. Now, these are two things that go together a lot in the Bible, usually in that order. God's judgment and his subsequent grace in light of that judgment. And so you'll see that theme come up later. Uh, And later in this story, and as we get to Christ especially, uh, as we see judgment occur on the cross and the grace that follows, um, I'll I'll come back to that. But judgment right here in chapter 3, judgment and subsequent or kind of related grace kind of woven together that that point us ahead in the story to uh, his plan of redemption. So let's look at judgment first then uh, different forms of judgment then ensue here uh, as, as specifically as we're looking at to Adam and Eve uh, and I what I mean by judgment you could look at this in terms of uh, punishments or results of sin and so what I mean by that is that sin biblically is objective and subjective uh, it's both it's outside of us and inside of us it, it affects us from the outside it pokes at us it's just out there but it subjectively mars our hearts as well So, in other words, for Adam and Eve, it was an act of Adam and Eve to to choose that fruit. But as we see, it also corrupts their hearts as well. It's not just, okay, they they chose sin once, but since sin is just out here, they had the chance to never do that again. Actually, that act became something that subjectively cursed them and marred their hearts and their spirits and their souls as well, since they weren't the same. Something metaphysical occurred uh, in, in their souls and bodies. So uh, Ephesians 2 then calls us being a sinner, this is the New Testament language, but same idea, calls us being a sinner by nature and by choice. It's in our blood, it's in our DNA, and it's something we choose as well. So we're born into it, we're, we're helplessly enslaved to it. Think about sin as something wrapped around your DNA, yet it's something we objectively outside of us choose and can kind of see it out here with our hands and thoughts and minds or in the, the lives of others as they sin against us, we're hurt by it as well so it's objective and it's and it's subjective and we see that here um, uh, as well so as I read this list then I've got six things Uh, note that they're both these are things that are judgments of God pronounced upon people but also just effects of sin they sinned against God it's already just messing things up uh, relationally and and otherwise and I'll go back and forth between the two so the first thing is blame shifting, and this goes back to last week. I, I want to mention it because it, it fits with this category so well, but it, it is from last week. We already saw it take place, how when, when God addresses Adam after all this occurs, he, uh, he said, basically says, where are you and what happened here? He addresses Adam, and Adam's first words are, uh, the woman you gave me here, uh, she, she gave me the fruit and did this. Uh, so kind of blaming God uh, a bit, blaming the woman, blaming Eve, his wife, but uh, passing the blame on to God, this woman you gave me, uh, she's the one here uh, who, who did this. And then Eve passes the blame on to the serpent, which is somewhat justifiable, of course. 
This is all then a whisper that things here, though, and, and the, it's such a simple, subtle thing, uh, but yet it's so loud, is, is that things have gone so south fast spiritually for the human race. Adam should have owned up, right? It happened on his watch. He was the leader here. Uh, he, he could have said to God after he was questioned about this, I let this happen to my wife. I have sinned. That could have been his response, right? But his response was rather, this woman you gave me, uh, to be, this is, this is, she gave the, the, the fruit to me and, and I ate. And so it's kind of on you and it's, and it's on her. Could have said the former, but he said the latter. Pride had already embedded itself way too deeply in his heart. He had already become wise in his own eyes. He had already become uh, the center of his own universe. Like God, the devil said, but in all the wrong ways. See how it's already corrupting the heart? When you become the center of your universe, you point. I'm innocent. I'm the good, I'm the good character here, the good party. The bad one's over here, outside of me. So see that first thing here, the blame-shifting aspect. The second thing is, in, is pain. These are all related. Blame-shifting is pain. But the second thing is physical pain. God says to Eve, I'll increase your pain in childbearing. So pain is part of the fall. And for Adam as well with his work. We'll come back to Adam here because it refers to pain for him here uh, in just a minute. The third thing is a divided relationships. So God says again to Eve, your desire will be for, or that can be translated against, your husband, and he will rule over you. M meaning, and, and Spence talked about this a little bit with uh, gender, the complementarity of gender a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 2. But basically, to sort of link to that, uh, this means that the, the divinely appointed roles that God had for Adam as the first, uh, first to be created, uh, the man, the husband in this relationship, the leader, and Eve, as his words were, helper, uh, Eve to be a helper of him, those roles were to be abused and to be twisted. Eve will want to lead and usurp her husband's role as leader in the family, so that's what he means by your desire will be for him, uh, your, your desire will be against him, uh, so it'll be, she'll become a usurper. But Adam also will rule harshly and sinfully. He won't lead in a, a servant-hearted gentle kind of way, but uh, Adam will rule in a harsh, sinful kind of way over her. So basically, in a nutshell, <laughs> marital conflict is already happening here. <laughs> the first marriage is messed up here in, in the beginning, uh, post-fall. post, post fall. But you could also widen that out to any relationship. So, and obviously, right, I hope that's obvious, but single or married or whatever, um, ma uh, marital conflict is a result of sin, but also all relational conflict is is a result. In fact, in chapter 4, two weeks from now, we'll see how the first two uh, children here, the, the, the brothers, the first two kids of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Cain kills Abel. So this murder happens within a family pretty much immediately. And so we have, we have this, again, this humanity has gone south really fast here, kind of thing playing out narratively instantly, really. Human relationships are instantly severed in the wake of the divine human relationship being, being severed. And that relationship's really important. Uh, Graham Goldsworthy says here about the two, that, so the horizontal and the vertical, he says that human relationships break down as a direct result of the break in relationship between God and mankind. 
This is key. All human conflict reflects our conflict with God. So saying to God, I don't need you, uh, is followed by humans saying to each other, I don't need you. It's followed by humans saying to each other, I am better than you. It's followed by humans saying to each other, I own you. Get behind me. Which, is, which leads to more sin, right? And so in fact, you can talk about sin being almost inherently relational, entirely relational. But becoming our own God, think about it this way. Becoming our own gods, which is what sin really is. It's saying, God, I'm going to pluck you right off the throne there and kind of put myself right up there. If that's what ultimately sin is, the headwaters of all these kind of symptoms of sin that, that are also sin, which we talked about before. Becoming our own gods is sin against God, but it also doesn't really work out that well relationally, does it? <laughs> like in marriage or in a friendship, when the other party is throning themselves or when they're putting themselves on the center of, of the universe kind of over you, that leads to sin, right? It doesn't really work out that well. It's, it's not give and take. It's, oh, wait a minute, this isn't mutual here. It's, it leads to pride. It leads to arrogance. It leads to con- it, condescension. You know, I, I, I'm, well, you're not up to my level yet. You know, I'll tolerate you and you can serve me and um, you'll, be, uh, you'll be my pupil kind of thing or whatever. You know, there's, there can be twisted versions of friendship and marriage and relationship and acquaintance. So becoming our own gods then is sin against God, but it's sin against people as, as well in a sense. Or the effects of what's happening here between us and God play out on a day-to-day basis. So every time you have a problem with someone, whether it's that person or you, think about your relationship with God and say, that's what's true with God right now. Saved or not, I mean, if, if you're saved, we'll come to this. If you're saved by Jesus Christ, that's not true anymore. The, the, the enmity between you and God has ended, and so that's the good news. But just talking big picture here, all human conflict is a reflection of the conflict that human beings have with God. That's the ultimate. That's the headwaters, disbelief in God, and it flows down into interpersonal, more horizontal conflict. All right, four uh, is the fourth thing is a cursed ground that led to painful work. And, and to be clear, this is not a, a commentary on all work. Work is not inherently evil; it existed before the fall. But this is a particular curse on the ground that led to agricultural frustration and heavy labor. It led to sweat. It led to pain. More pain is a a product of sin against God. It's a product of rejection and rebellion against God. And this is in stark contrast, if you remember back to where things were in chapter 2 before the fall and how things were just happening and occurring in the garden. In stark contrast to Eden, where God, it says, gave Adam and Eve everything they needed. He That that word gave is used multiple times. God gave all the trees of the garden. God gave all the fruit. He gave gave them everything in the garden. Now, Adam has to work for it. Uh, Seemingly more himself. That's the implication here, right? Under harsher conditions. And so what what this is narratively, it's a whisper of where self-righteousness, where our work gets us. You know, what rebellion against God really means. You know, God in sometimes, in some senses of the idea, you see this play out in the biblical storyline, gives us over to what we want so that we'll see that it's not working. <laughs> you know, and so there's almost a sense to which God is graciously, lovingly, like a parent, you know, who, 
to his, his or her child saying, I want to run away, saying, all right, so you can go run away, and they look out the door and see him get to the end of the block and kind of giggle, you know, almost kind of like, almost kind of like that. God gives us over to things, and, and this is one of the things. People, Adam and Eve, basically are saying, we don't need you, and God says, okay, then go work the field yourself and see how that works for you. And there's, there's a sense of judgment in that. Pain comes from it, but a sense of grace as well. Very quickly, they probably realize, what did we do? Things were perfect when we just had God, when we weren't the center of our universe, when we weren't little mini-gods here. Things were, things were much, 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 much better. And so Adam's work here that, and, and Eve's that lead to pain is that whisper of where works and self-righteousness and religion get us. Uh, and, it, and it points ahead, is that whisper ahead, see, we need God. We need, to, we need him to do something. We need his righteous rule over us. We need his generosity. We need him to give us food physically and spiritually and restore things to the way that they were. All right, fifth is exile. Uh, so at the end of the chapter here, God drives, literally, and this is physical and it's also symbolic, he, he drives out the man and his wife from Eden, which is the same thing as saying he drives the man away from him. So remember, God is everywhere, but he's especially in Eden. And so to drive someone away from the land of his presence is to say, you are no longer where I am. You cannot reside the imperfect where I am, the perfect. You cannot, uh, or you'll die. Uh, it's, it's, God is holy and just and good, and the cursed and the rebellious uh, must be cast out and exiled away from him. So he drives them out of the garden. He sets up two cherubim with flaming swords. He gates the entrance back to uh, the tree of life, which is to say that sinners cannot get back to God on their own. And when you read that in the story, you should say that there's no way, and some of you guys know the story. Did Adam and Eve ever get back to the garden on their own? Did they ever, did they ever turn around here? You get, those of you who know Genesis, does that happen? Never, right? And so that's, that's the, the point. In case you, you're, you're tempted to think that, well, maybe they can sneak around the cherubim when they fall asleep or something. That, that, that the point is, no way back. No way back. It's impossible. This, this makes me, kind of harkens us ahead in the story to when Jesus says, it's impossible for people to be saved. Great, you know. It's impossible. Impossible. Stop trying. It's impossible for people to be saved from their sins. This is Jesus' words, the Son of God. Impossible on our own. But as he continues, uh, praise be to God, not with God. For all things are possible with God. See, all that just, it points right back here to Genesis 3. Not with us, but with God. Not by flesh, not by might, but by the Spirit, says the Lord in Zechariah 4-6. Not by flesh, not by strength, not by work, not by might, not by getting through the wall of cherubim and flaming swords on your own, but rather by a God who exits the garden uh, and takes on our pain and suffering uh, to, to bring us back in. We'll, we'll come to that. Six and final is death. Uh, so he just says really simply to Adam, you'll return to the ground. You will die. And so these last two things, exile and death, they're reminders of what the real issue is. Again, separation from God, going our own way, rejecting the creator, and, and death. Wh which, of course, is the case, right? It's, 
sin, if, if sin is saying to the true source, the only source of life, I don't need you, I'm going to go over here to get my source of life, of course death is going to come, right? Sin is like taking off our oxygen mask in, in, a, in a smoke-filled, burning-down house, saying, I can get by without the oxygen. Well, of course you're going to die. It's, it's not just God said this would happen. It's a logical step, right? It's, it's saying, I can live without water. I can live without oxygen. You know, it, it's, it's the exact same thing. So, of course, death is going to come because the only place we, that air that we're all breathing right now, your, your diaphragms that just lifted up and, and pushed air out of your lungs and, re, and relaxed and let lungs back, air back into your lungs, the heart that's beating in you, every moment of that is a gift from God. Don't think that's from you or nature, Mother Nature. That's a gift from God. Every moment is a gift. Every moment is, is full of his grace. And so if, we, if, we, if and when and we have rejected that, it's cool because it says a lot about God's patience and grace for us and physically in the present is common grace, but we'll come to that. Here, though, in the story, of course death's going to come, right? It's just a logical flow of thought. If we reject the fountain of living waters, we're going to die of, of spiritual and physical thirst eventually. And so God pronounces that judgment. He says, I didn't lie before. If you reject me, then the only one who gives life, you're going to die. You, you, you won't be sustained. And that's why death exists in the world. Because we all, all of us, have looked at God and said, no thanks. I don't need you. It's not just that we've committed sexual sin. We have. And we all will. And that's an offense to God as well. But behind the curtains of that is, I don't care what you think. I can do what I want. It's about me and feeling better and feeling excited and, or whatever in this moment and satisfying my lusts. Uh, behind the curtain is saying, God, uh, basically slapping him in the face, giving him the finger and saying, see you later, I'm out of here. So behind the curtains of that uh, is what that is, and that's what exile and death then, that's why it's the, the ultimate judgment and uh, condemnation here. All right, so with all that, this is the bad news. <laughs> we, <clears throat> we do this a lot. <clears throat> we talk about the bad news, again, you know, on the heels of the good. So judgment and grace, remember. Bad news, good news. Dark background contrasted with bright foreground of, of grace. And so feel the weight of judgment here. Feel the weight of what sin truly is, how much we fall short. Feel the sting of it. Some of you are in pain right now as I speak to you. You might be suffering with chronic pain. You don't have to be convinced of this. You're mourning the death of a loved one. You have to be convinced of this. We all will if, if we're not. Feel the weight and the sting of that. But don't skip over the grace here. The, the, the patience, the kindness, and the images of Christ beforehand that we get uh, from a passage like this. It's incredible that things occur as they do. And so when you're in the throes of sin... What you think about, when you think about passages like this, say a lot about what you think about the gospel. Is it just judgment, or is it judgment and grace? So there's a lot of whispers of grace in this passage. We could talk about a lot of them at length, but I'm just going to give you five here really quick and just read through them and talk about one that's the most explicit. So it starts with little things. Like if you notice um, here, Adam and Eve aren't really cursed directly. Only the devil is cursed in the ground. 
uh, and so to be clear, we share in the curse. I think it's still fine to say that we are cursed as human beings, uh, you know, without question, where we share in the curse. But the brunt of God's declaration of war is aimed at the devil. Uh, it, it, it hints here, and what that hints at, the fact that we don't, you know, we, we have this different place than the devil in the eyes of God. Like, he is going to save us and, and not fallen angels. It hints the fact that we won't be cursed forever. Even just the way it's talked about here, the word curse is never used for human beings explicitly, or at least in the same way it is for the devil. So you kind of got that. Well, again, it's subtle, right? But it's left out, or it's written this way for, for a reason. Second, women will still be allowed to have children. Isn't that amazing? You can read over that, right? You can look at two aspects of that. Well, you can look at God says there's going to be pain in childbirth. God's going to increase that. But you also have to flip it around and say, wait a minute. God's going to allow women to have kids? Where's that come from? Do we deserve that? Is there some kind of thing God signed before all this happened to say is liable now to still allow us to have kids? No. Fertility is a gift. The fact that women are still allowed to have kids and, and men uh, with them, of course, to be fathers, I mean, that's amazing. That's a, it's a whisper of grace. Uh, third, relatedly, in regards to what was said about Adam working in the fields by the sweat and pain of his brow, his face, food will still be cultivated. In pain, that's the judgment, but God says, I'm still going to allow you to grow some things. Grace. Is that by the work of the man? Is that, be, is that because they've become these master horticulturists all of a sudden, like overnight? No. It's because God is allowing his grace to go forth and to feed people. Uh, he makes forth, he makes for them garments of skin. He clothes them, which is not just an act of kindness, but it's a contrast, if you remember from last week, to how they, Adam and Eve, made for themselves loincloths from plants. Remember that, how they, they were embarrassed, they were full of shame because of what they did, and so they sewed together fig leaves and they made loincloths for themselves. Basically, what God is saying is, you know, give me the loincloths, that's not, that's not you didn't do a very good job there anyway. Um, he, here's some animal skins, which are better, right? They're warmer, they're more substantive, they're going to they're withstand tearing uh, and the sun's heat and deterioration of uh, materials as, as well. And so in and of itself, that too is a whisper of how human effort fails, or at least is lesser, and divine effort is always better. So that's fourth, and fifth is exile. So even though exile is judgment here, it's interesting how at the end God is kind of talking amongst the trinity that constitutes the one true God and the Godhead, and he says, they have, they have become like us, knowing the difference between good and evil. That's corrupted their hearts. But now, so that they don't eat from the tree of life and remain a sinner forever, I'm going to guard the way back to the tree of life with these angels. And so, exile is both. It's judgment, but it's also protection. He's saying, let's make sure they don't eat from the tree of life now, which granted eternal life. I don't want them to be in this state forever. Even, you could even say, in one sense, death is kind of a gracious thing, uh, in, in one sense. Which, again, it's such a whisper of Christ, right, uh, ahead of time. So all those things, we could talk about those five all day. So there's more to what I'm just saying here. But those are four initial things that maybe you saw, maybe you didn't. But things just to kind of check in your Bibles and say, God does not owe us that. God is patient. God is kind. God is gracious. He's clothing. He's 
letting them talk. He's not cursing in the same way as the devil. He's allowing the, the, the miracle of conception to still occur, the joy of having kids. He's feeding. He's protecting. Immediately, he's doing that. What does that tell you? If you know nothing about the Bible but just that, doesn't it make you want to keep reading? It's like a great novel that ends a chapter on a cliffhanger. It's like, I just want to keep reading. You know, I don't care if it's 2 a.m. I just want to keep reading. If you know nothing, this points you ahead, right? The Bible's always, always, always pointing ahead, pointing ahead, pointing ahead to Jesus, who's the fulfillment of all these whispers of his grace. All right, but the focus, I think, is on the most explicit showing of grace here. Future grace, from this vantage point, is on verse 15, when he says to the devil, so go back to what he says to the serpent here. First, in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity, conflict, between you and the woman, and specifically between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God here uh, declares war most clearly in this one promise. He promises to destroy the devil through the offspring of Eve. Theologian types call this the the, uh, proto-evangelium, or the proto-gospel, or the first glimpse of the gospel or promise of Christ ahead of time, right here in a verse, who is said in the New Testament to specifically have come into the world, and from 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. The reason Jesus appeared was to fulfill Genesis 3.15, was to destroy the work of the devil. I'd actually, um, with this proto-evangelium idea, I would beg to differ uh, that this is the first glimpse of the gospel in Genesis because Genesis 1.1 is a glimpse of the gospel. And we've seen dozens of glimpses of Jesus before this. But I would say this is the first explicit post-fall or post-sin coming into the world mentioning or of or promise of the gospel uh, in in the bible especially as you think about the explicit nature in that sense it is the proto-gospel without question what i want to focus on here though is this latter part of the verse which is intriguing i mean again if you don't know anything about the latter part of the bible at this point you'd be saying what you know what does that mean and it's sort of poetic and we don't get this yet but what's interesting here the way god speaks to the devil is and how he promises his son to come into the world as a human being, hence the idea of being the offspring of Eve. Someone will eventually be born into the world to be the one, the Messiah, the king, the serpent head crusher, the one to undo all that's happened up to this point since Genesis 3.1 was written or occurred. Um, What's interesting here is that we get uh, not just a glimpse that Jesus is going to come into the world, and not just a glimpse in what his mission will be. We might be able to piece some of that together if we know anything at all about the story. But we also get a glimpse of the how behind his mission. How is he going to crush the devil's head? How is he going to undo the works of the devil in the world? How is he going to ultimately clothe us with garments of skin? How is he going to end our exile? How is he going to reverse the worst beginning to any story and movie that's ever existed in history because it's true. Because it's yours and mine. How is he going to do it? Not just that he's going to do it. How is he going to do it? And the answer is the end of the verse. By having his heel bruised. 
Isn't that interesting that's even mentioned? Could have said, and it would still be true, that the, the offspring of Eve will come into the world, there will be enmity, there will be a conflict between this one and the serpent, or the, the devil, and, and he will crush your head, period. Could have ended there, but he adds this little clause, you will bruise his heel. In other words, this offspring of Eve, this savior figure, this undoer of the curse, is going to suffer. He's going to be stung. He's going to have the fangs of the ultimate snake sunk into his heel. He's going to feel it. And ultimately, he's going to die. Isaiah 53 says elsewhere in the Old Testament, looking ahead to Jesus, it says, Surely he, speaking of this suffering servant who is to come to save us all, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, this is great Genesis 3 language here, by the way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, here's the solution. The Lord has laid on him, this suffering servant, Christ, the iniquity, the sin, of us all. Now that's broad uh, in terms of what it means to be struck in the heel, what, it, what it's going to mean for the Son of God, but what, what's fascinating about this passage is that if you think about it, all the forms of the judgment of Genesis 3 really become Jesus's. This is so important to understand you guys when we talk about substitution here as a church family and for some of you, it might be a brand new concept. But we say all the time, when the Bible says he died for us, it's talking about substitution. Or we might just say that flat out sometimes. Christ substituted himself for us. He was the sacrifice who died in our place. It's very appropriate, all this, for Good Friday coming up this week, right? We say this every week, but especially for this Holy Week coming up. And, and here is that Isaiah 53 is about, is about Christ, and it's about substitution. The actual judgments pronounced upon Adam and Eve are specifically the things that Jesus takes on himself. So he's not just vaguely dying for sins. He's taking on the judgments and the punishments and the curses. Everything that's given over to Adam and Eve is specifically what happens to Jesus on the cross. And so here's what I mean by this. I'll go through these kind of quick. First, what happened on the cross is, and even in his ministry, Jesus took pain. I think it may have the most obvious. A pain worse than childbearing and worse than manual labor. 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once, here it is, for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us back to God and end our exile. Right? Genesis 3 language. Or you could say Adam was to work among the thorns and thistles agriculturally, but Christ wore thorns and thistles around his head as he was crucified, literally taking on this curse that was pronounced to Adam uh, earlier in the story. And second, he didn't just bear our sins, but he bore the specific sin of relational brokenness in that he was torn from a relationship with God the Father on our behalf exiled from him 
that we might be brought back in. Jesus says on the cross, this is why he says this. There are a lot of reasons why he says this. But since we're in Genesis, here's one of the reasons why. When Jesus says, my God, my God, as the Son of God, saying to God the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why have you turned your back? You see what he's doing? He's taking on the exile pronounced upon Adam and Eve in the beginning. All of our stories. He's becoming separated from God for us, the separated ones from God. So that we don't have to be anymore. The righteous for the unrighteous. So God's justice is being poured out. All these righteous judgments are being poured out on him for us. He substituted himself in that capacity so that now those of us who are experiencing these things in the world don't have to anymore. So he ends, he dies for sins, but specifically, you could say even, because of what he said on the cross about being forsaken by God the Father, he dies for that sin of relational brokenness as well. And that exile, uh, that being cast away from God, cast out of the garden, he's dying so that that punishment that we had upon us doesn't have to be paid anymore by us. It's paid by him. Generally, this is the third thing, He became a curse for us on the cross. Galatians 3, I said this a couple weeks ago too, I think, or last week, I forget. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who is crucified. It's interesting, this was written in Deuteronomy, which was written hundreds of years uh, before crucifixion was even invented. But God knew it was going to be, and so he adds this kind of strange law in his greater kind of book of the law to, given to Israel, saying everyone who's hung on a tree is cursed, knowing that one day his son would, would basically absorb that command, that command, that law. He will become cursed for the cursed. See, see how everything is cursed in the beginning, but specifically Jesus had to become that curse as a righteous man, dying for the unrighteous to remove and lift that curse off those who are cursed. Substitution, again. And then finally, death. Ultimately, he took on our sentence of death for us. It's important that he died. Not just that he suffered for six hours, but he actually took his final breath. His heart stopped beating, and he died. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, to be very clear, Christ died for us. Think about that sometime, maybe you never have, but that God experienced death for you. You know, we we might fear death, fear death for those who are dying. God's already been there. He, he, He passed through death. His son passed through death for us, and he came back out of it, so that now those of us who are under the sentence of death don't have to worry about that being a final punishment for us anymore. You see how it's substitution? Again, it's, it's, Christ is not just dying for sins, everyone. He's dying for the specific curses given to our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, and, and a condemnation we're all under, so that we can look at Jesus and say, he, he's a human being like us, taking that punishment in the fullest sense of the word, the ultimate Good Friday, and then look three days later when he rose again to, to justify, vindicate himself, to say Good Friday actually worked, He atoned for sin. There's a new creation here now, new life. Death no longer is a thing for those who believe. We can look at that and say Christ 
really did remove it. He really did die specifically for the problem, not just the problem of sin, but the judgments given by God over the human race in the very beginning. And so with all that in mind, then, it's important to remember that God does not say that sin is no big deal. Everyone's saved. He's not like a, you know, a um, kind of a lazy parent who, who can't discipline their kids, or, you know, who can't speak into evil. He, you know, he's more concerned about checking a Facebook status than actually talking to his son or daughter about what just happened there between your sibling and you, and in your rebellion against me as a parent, and, and just the, the sin in your heart, actually talking and disciplining and talking about right and wrong. And it's kind of like, God's not like that. He's perfectly just. He's a righteous judge. Sin has to be dealt with. But here's rather what he says. This is the good news. That's kind of the bad news. But God says in the gospel, sin must be dealt with, and I'm going to deal with it for you. Do you see that latter piece, how important that is? Sin has to be dealt with. I'm going to take it on completely for you. I'm going to absorb it. I'm going to reckon with it. The, the, the gospel says, in Christ, God declares war more on the devil and your sin than you. Isn't that a relief? God declares war in the gospel more on the devil and more on your sin than you. He sends his son to die for us, that he might destroy Satan's work, 1 John 3, 8, which is sin, crush his head, but also wrap his arms around us at the same time. It's kind of this paradoxical thing of really on the cross you see, and that picture Peter showed earlier kind of gets at this, but you see the heel of the offspring of Eve, Jesus, being bruised by the devil, you see at the same time Jesus crushing the head of the serpent, and you see the Son of God wrapping his arms firmly, squarely around his church forever and ever and ever and ever at the same time. Because sin is being dealt with, actually dealt with, not just shushed aside and saying, ah, boys will be boys, you know. It's not, not a posture of God towards sin. Righteous judge, angry against sin, but more loving than you've ever you can ever possibly fathom towards you. More merciful than you could possibly ever find. You've ever experienced in your life another human being times a billion. He's, he's merciful and he's just. And those things come together and blend perfectly on the cross. It's actually dealt with. It's died for. It's atoned for. It's reckoned with. It's crushed. It's destroyed. It's annihilated. All in the plan of God and and so remember, you guys, and I'll end with this, uh, you, you have to, we have to see this as our story as well. Or it becomes, at best, a neat theological story that we might academicize. But it, this is our story as well. These are our first parents. We inherit all of this from them. These are historical figures, not just a story. They actually lived on the earth, and we all come from them somehow. And so we inherit this in our blood, this type of propensity to reject God and, and also these judgments pronounced upon them. It wasn't just to them. It was to their children and their children's children and so on all the way uh, to us. And so that pain you guys are experiencing today or that shame that you're experiencing or that relational sin or that distance from God that you're feeling or worried about or the death 
that you're experiencing, uh, you know, here's the source. Like all the stuff we're talking about today, this is the story of it. The source is what we're reading about in Genesis 3. But the good news is, if that's your story and mine, it means that this is our God as well. So if you don't want to put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes, there's kind of a double-edged sword to that. You can kind of feel better that, oh, well, I'm not as sinful as they are. But then the, the other side of the sword says, well, then that's not your God as well. All the promises and the graces of God, then, well, that's not to you then anymore or me. So it's a double-edged sword. You, you can remove yourself from the story, but then the goodness of God, the grace of God, he's not your God. You've got to fully jump in to the deep end here existentially, spiritually, theologically, and say that this is my experience, this is who I am, this is my story, this is my narrative. I'm exiled from God's presence, but he has left the garden to come find me and to die for my sins. And, and, and again, man, uh, <laughs> the fact that, okay, here's Christianity in a nutshell right here. Genesis 3, look at how quickly he promises something how quick he is right after sin enters the world. What is God doing here? What just happened? Do you realize how much responsibility he takes here right away? He says, I will put enmity between the woman and the serpent. I will do it. It's a promise. The first thing he does is promises to end it all. Isn't that incredible? Notice what he, notice what he, he doesn't do. It, it's the solution is not, oh, before you leave the garden, guys, here's a couple of, let me just get a couple of stone tablets of laws to keep and heap them on them and tie them to their back and say, good luck storming the castle. Where's the morality, you guys? Where's the Ten Commandments? Where's the laws? Gloriously absent. All you have is God saying, I will do this. You are judged. I will put enmity between the the, the, the offspring of Eve and this devil, this ultimate arch enemy, I will end the curse. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. Never you will do it. If you've never read the Bible, let me just ease your concern. That never comes up once. There's never a, a, a promise that you will do it. You know, it's like Nike or something. You know, there's no swoosh in the Bible. You can't do it. Or it's just do it, I guess, right? But whatever. There's still no just do it. There's I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. Guys, your story, if this is your story, it's called a belief. Your story is grounded on a promise. This, this promise theme will come up a lot in Genesis. We'll see God talk about the promise a lot. This is what it comes back to. A promise to undo the curse and to bless. Blessing is the opposite of curse. To bless the nations. To, to bless those who are under a horrible condemning curse. And to do it through the one who would come from Eve, who would come into the world, and who would be bruised in the heel, who would suffer, but who would crush the work of the devil. That work that is a lie, saying that you can be like God if you just reach for that fruit. You are enough. That's the, that's the work that Jesus will come to crush. You are your own God. All of our sin, all of our rebellion, praise be to God, is there. And it's wrapped up in a promise. So we stare at the cross and say, that's the fulfillment of the promise. All the promises of God, the Bible says, find their yes in Christ. Does not disclude this one. 
all the promises of God, when God says, I will crush, that's a promise, and Jesus is the yes to that promise. So be relieved in that. Is that where you're at? Do you believe in this today? Work hard. It's, the Bible says, stand firm in grace. Are you working hard at believing that? It's standing firm in that grace. Is that a work for you on a daily basis? Working hard at standing firm in that promise, not in yourself. Or are you still living under that cursed lie that if you work hard enough, you'll be all right? And again, I, I was talking to someone this week about this, how uh, you know, he was just saying to me, he, he thinks this is right, but it is the ultimate work for the Christian to keep the law after they're saved. And, and, I, and I said to him, uh, I've got good news and bad news. Uh, good news is no, that's not the ultimate work. Uh, but here's the tough news. The, the, the biggest work for you and me in life, the biggest threat, the, the biggest challenge for us will be to work hard at keeping belief in our heart. The devil will not just love to, you know, make you into a bad person. He wants to make you into a good person who doesn't need Jesus. That will be the bigger challenge. I prom- I'm saying this by experience as well. Been a Christian a little, a little while now, and, I, and I've, this is my biggest battle. It's not keeping good things and not doing bad things, though that there is an aspect of that, of course, to all of our lives as spiritual people. It's, um, it, it's, it's working hard at believing that Jesus is sufficient, that he really is enough for us. And, and I promise you that will be the battle. You will, in sin, out of sin, in comfort and peace, that you will fight the rest of your life. We've got to stand firm in the fact that God promised in Genesis 3, he never acquired anything of people. So don't add to what God didn't add to. <laughs> be, be free in the fact that you're saved by grace, not by what you do. Everything in the Bible is about that great message to God's glory and our benefit. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace in the gospel. Thank you for um, saving us from our sins, for promising in this proto-gospel idea that you would send someone into the world to become a human being who would be your son, who would crush the head of the liar, crush the head of the liar, and who would set us free uh, and in the process be bruised in his heel. Thank you that it's through suffering and death that you bring, that you bring relief. It's through your own suffering and death your own bruised heel, God, that you bring relief uh, to cursed sinners like us. Uh, Help us to believe and to work hard at standing firm in grace and in belief. Standing firm in the fact that we can't do anything to save ourselves. Help us to respond and rejoice here as we leave uh, encouraged in grace and maybe for the first time saved by you and no longer by ourselves. Uh, In Christ's name we pray. Amen.